John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, your Bible probably has a notation about this passage. For example, my ESV Bible right here in front of me has double brackets around the passage, and it has a, a, a note at the top saying the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Now, what's that about? Well, most scholars don't think that this passage is original to John's gospel. It wasn't in the earliest manuscripts that we have, thus the note. It was added later by the early church. When we find the passage in, in later manuscripts, it's in different places. Sometimes it's earlier in John chapter 7. Sometimes it's where we find it here. Sometimes it's in John chapter 21. There's even a manuscript that has it in Luke chapter 21. Now, there's a whole branch of biblical studies uh, known as textual criticism that researches all of these kinds of things. I don't have time to get into that tonight, and you would probably be bored to tears if I did. But I do want to say a few things. And the first thing is that having these kinds of notes in our Bible is actually a really great gift of scholarship, and it should only increase our confidence in the Scriptures. There are other textual variants in the Bible notated in here as well. In all of them, if we were to choose one word over another, there is nothing substantial of Orthodox Christian doctrine that changes one bit. You can be absolutely certain that the Bible that you have in your hands is the word that God wants you to have. And I think that's amazing. The second thing I want to say about this is, is though its place in the Bible is a bit debated, this is an ancient story that we're looking at here tonight. Several of the early church fathers reference it, and the church has historically held to its authenticity. It's so consistent with Jesus and doesn't contradict anything else that we see of him in all of the scriptures. So as John Calvin said, since the passage contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there's no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. I agree with that. So with all of that said, and I can't ignore it, I don't want to ignore it, your Bible notates it, but with all of that said, let's read it now. The woman caught in adultery. By the way, this is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. We'll pick it up at the end of chapter 7 and verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word. What do we see in this passage? At least two things. Jesus confronted the accusers, and Jesus comforted the accused. I want to look first at Jesus confronting the accusers. The religious leaders just love to test Jesus with traps, veiled as questions. I mean, we see that throughout the Gospels, don't we? Jesus was so different from their expectations of the Messiah and so, so vastly different from how they lived that they couldn't fathom how Jesus could be anything but a blasphemer. So we pick up the story in the temple and Jesus is there teaching that day. When the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they bring in this woman, they kind of throw her in the middle of everybody and say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Jesus is, is put on the spot here in front of everyone. What would the great teacher say? Now there are a couple of things worth noticing about this accusation before we get too far into it. The law that they're referring to, it's found in, in really a couple of places in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22, for example, verses 23 and 24 says, If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Then we see in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, given those laws and in this context, I wonder if you noticed uh, something about them. And about the situation. There's something missing in how they brought the accusation. The law commanded both parties to be punished. So where's the man? I mean, maybe we could assume that they didn't see him, but, you know, that's really not a possibility given the accusation. To gain conviction in Jewish law required a very specific type of witness. At least two witnesses must agree on absolutely everything in regards to the, to the claim. There's even an old Jewish story about a woman named Susanna who was accused of adultery under a tree. And she was in the end acquitted because the witnesses could not agree on the types of leaves on the tree. They had to agree on absolutely everything. On top of two witnesses agreeing, they had to actually, in this case, see the act itself being played out. In other words, it wouldn't work if they, I don't know, saw her leaving a room or, or saw her in a, a compromising situation. They had to actually see the act itself. So these religious leaders are saying 
they saw the woman in the act of adultery. And so if that's the case, I ask again, where's the man? Why is it so often only the women that bear the reproach of these kinds of things? Now, some speculate that perhaps the woman was set up. Maybe the man was even there among the crowd of accusers. The text doesn't tell us, so we can't be sure. But if these scribes and Pharisees were really concerned about Jesus upholding the law as it's written, they should have brought the man as well. But the woman was enough for their purposes. They were were using her to trap Jesus. They were taking her shame for their gain. They were more threatened by Jesus than they were by any lawbreakers. There was no formal trial. There was only an accusation and then a question posed to Jesus. What do you say? What are you going to do? Now let's consider the stakes. If Jesus didn't uphold the law, then all that he said about fulfilling the law was a lie. But if he did uphold the law and commanded stoning... How would that jive with his whole ministry of compassion to sinners? They've put him in a tight spot. There's also even more to that. If he didn't uphold the law, well, he could be convicted in Jewish courts. If he did command stoning, well, the Jews actually didn't have a right to, to execute someone. I mean, we see when they go and have to get, want to get Jesus killed, they have to go and get the Roman authorities. This isn't an easy one for Jesus. It comes down to this. Is Jesus just or is he compassionate? Now, in the minds of the Pharisees and scribes, I'm not sure they knew how to reconcile those two things. But as Tim Keller has said, Jesus combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has never seen its like. Those are not enemies to Jesus. We see how he responded in verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground now. (laughs) What did he write? Don't you want to know? This is the only thing Jesus ever wrote. Well, the truth is we don't know. (laughs) We have no idea. The text is silent. And anybody who tells you that they know what he wrote, they're probably just making it up. We can make some good guesses, I guess, but no one actually knows what he wrote. And I don't think it matters what he wrote because immediately after he spoke. In verse 7, he stood and said some of the most famous words that have ever been spoken. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, we can't overlook the brilliance of this response. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, don't throw any stones. What did he say? He said, go ahead. But make sure that you are without sin. He trapped the trappers. He he confronted her accusers. He turned the tables on them. He said, you want to apply the law? Let's apply it. It's a brilliant move. He didn't deny the law. He just applied the law to the letter of the law. 
and no one could stand before it. No one there was without sin except for him. No one was qualified to throw the first stone but him, and he didn't do it. And we'll look at why in a minute. But after he said that, he went back to writing on the ground. Again, we don't know what he wrote, and it doesn't matter. You know, maybe all this writing on the ground shows just how far outside all of this fabricated drama Jesus remained. And they came to him with this, this big deal, and he sees right through them. He knows what they're after because they've been doing it all along. He kind of ignored them, I guess. You know, I mean, it's not that obeying the law doesn't matter to Jesus, but he knows what they're doing. And I think writing on the ground might have just been his uh, way to kind of show their, his disinterest to their little show that they've got going on. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of like my kids all grew up playing t-ball. And one thing about t-ball is the kids will play in the dirt. And the coaches really care about the game for some reason. Like it's freaking MLB. I mean, they care about this thing. And there have been times that I've seen where the coach will be arguing about some close call at first and the kids are playing in the dirt. Even the kid that got called out just don't care. But Jesus' words hit home. And maybe he went back to writing in the dirt because it took a few minutes for his words to sink in and drive action. And he was just buying time for everybody to realize what he said. Verse 9 says, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Now, why the older ones first? I think that's interesting. We don't know for sure. But maybe it's because as you age, you start to realize just how far from perfect you really are. You can trick yourself into thinking you're not that bad when you're young. I mean, there are things you would never do. There are lines you would never cross. And as long as you're on the right side of the whatever line that is, you can convince yourself that you're, you're a decent person. You just need to live longer. And you realize you aren't. The longer you live, the harder it becomes to live up to that self-image. And after the older ones started the trend of leaving, eventually everyone left. Now, I think whatever we want to say about the scribes and Pharisees, and there are a lot of things we could say about them, I think it's disingenuous to say that they didn't want to obey God. Because if they didn't, they would have remained. The focus then turns from the accusers to the accused. Imagine the scene. I mean, moments before, there's this angry mob of people, authorities, important people, standing around this woman, demanding her death. Now, after one question from Jesus... Not a single one was left. As D.A. Carson says in his commentary, those who had come to shame Jesus now leave in shame. The ring around her just melted away, just dissipated. 
and it was just her and Jesus only. Now that's, that's not necessarily good news for her. Not yet. Because Jesus didn't say no stones need to be thrown. He only said whoever has no sin, go ahead and throw it. Jesus was the only one without sin. I don't know what this woman knew of Jesus. I don't know what, she, what story she had heard. But by this point, we know Jesus had at least claimed to be God. His reputation was getting out. Jesus, if Jesus was the one who he said he was, was the only one who could truly throw the first stone. And there she is before him wondering, will he? She knew what she deserved. But what would Jesus give? He would give the most amazing thing imaginable. Jesus, when the accusers brought her, confronted the accusers. But he comforted the accused. Jesus stood and he looked at this woman and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, com commentator Colin Cruz points out that this is, this is actually the first time in the story that anyone addressed the woman. We're 10 verses in. There's only 11 verses. They dragged her in. They accused her of adultery. They demanded her death. But until this moment, no one spoke anything to her. And Jesus did not start with her sin. He started with her accusers. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that just like Jesus, what we know of him? He's the defender of the guilty. When she answered that none of them condemned her, Jesus said something amazing in response. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, we love those words, don't we? We long to hear those words, don't we? But you know, we kind of have to ask the question, how can Jesus say this? If this woman really was an adulterer, if she really was a lawbreaker, how can Jesus just say, I don't condemn you either? Go. Well, in a way, he could say it because now that everyone's gone, no witnesses remained, right? The trial is kind of dropped. There's no real case against her. But there's a more puzzling question, I think. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't totally wrong. If the law is violated, doesn't that demand punishment? Shouldn't Jesus act justly here? Is he ignoring the law? Well, again, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say you aren't guilty. 
And the last thing that he tells her is to go and sin no more. He's not saying she's innocent, but he doesn't condemn her. That's interesting to me. Jesus is the most holy person that exists. He can't overlook sin because if God overlooks sin, that's a real problem for us too. How can there be any justice in the world if God's just going to overlook the sin? Now here's where we get straight to the very heart of Christianity. Christianity says that we are guilty, but we're not condemned. How can that be? If we are guilty, we must be condemned. Justice demands it. If we are truly guilty, there is no way around condemnation, is there? I mean, try telling parents whose child is murdered that there is no condemnation for the murderer. They would be outraged, and rightly so. So how can Jesus say this? How can he, she and we be guilty but not condemned? Perhaps the most amazing verse in all the Bible is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's how we can be guilty but not condemned. Only if we're in Christ. It can only be true if Jesus takes our guilt from us. It only works if 2 Corinthians 5.21 is true. That for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only if Jesus takes our guilt and our sin and pays the full price for that guilt, for that sin, can we be not condemned. It's only true that we are guilty and not condemned if someone else is condemned for us. The guilt and the sin don't just disappear. The penalty must be paid. Someone must pay it. We can only be guilty but not condemned by the law if if Jesus upholds the law for us and pays for our failures on our behalf on the cross don't you see that's the only way Jesus can only not condemn this woman now if he's going to be condemned for her later and that's exactly what he will do Jesus knows that she should be stoned according to the law he wrote that law as God he does demand perfect holiness from his people but his savior He knows that that cannot come apart from himself. Instead of throwing the first stone, he will let stones be thrown at him. 
Instead of her being crushed beneath the weight of their blows, he will suffocate on the cross on our behalf. Jesus didn't condemn her then because he would be condemned for her later. Now that's why Paul says in Romans 3, 26, that God is both just and the justifier. He is just and no sin will go unpunished. But for his people, he is also the justifier, the one who sets things right with God, the one who bears the penalty himself on the cross. That's the only way this works. He can only forgive then because he will pay the penalty himself later. That's the heart of Christianity. Guilty, but in Christ, not condemned. Left before Jesus, there in that room, in that temple that day, before the only one who could really condemn her, she finds this rock that she never expected to receive. She finds this rock that will be struck for her, this, this cornerstone that becomes this new foundation from which she can build a new life. And if she found that, you can find that too. This is, I think this is one of the, the amazing things about this story. This is not a one-off. This is not something Jesus did for one woman 2,000 years ago. This is the normative way that Jesus works in this world. And we don't only see it here in John 8. We see it through as, throughout his interactions with people in the Gospels. We see Jesus moving towards sinners and sufferers in ways that, that if we really read them right, they shock us, they surprise us. I mean, Jesus shows us that God's heart isn't trigger-happy to condemn. Now I'll say... I grew up thinking it was. But if I read the Bible, that's just not what I see. In Luke 7, for example, when the woman of the city, that, that's, I don't know, code phrase for a prostitute, comes in to the room where Jesus is having dinner with his friends and some Pharisees. She busts open this uh, uh, case of oil and wipes it with her hair and cries on his feet. The Pharisees were repulsed by that. But Jesus welcomed her and in that moment forgave her of her many sins. In Luke 19, Jesus meets Zacchaeus, the tax collector, whom everyone hated, who Jesus approached and said, I'm going to your house tonight for dinner. And when he got there, he changed Zacchaeus' heart from sinner to saint. In Matthew 9, Jesus is there teaching, and these guys bring their friend who is a paralytic on a mat to Jesus. And before they even have a chance to speak, Jesus 
the text says, saw their faith. And he spoke to the man on the mat and said, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And he does. As Jesus traveled and saw the crowds, we see time and time again he had compassion on them. He taught them from God's law, but he bent down and he healed their diseases. Jesus stands outside of Jerusalem in one account and weeps over the city. His heart was moved. Throughout his ministry, we find the truth of Isaiah 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he will not put out till he brings forth judgment to victory. He brought forth judgment to victory on the cross in himself. He will not break us. He will not put us out. Because he was broken for us. Because he was put out for us. The thing that pours out most naturally from Jesus' heart is compassion for the undeserving. That's just who he is. That's the truth of Jesus' heart. In his book, Gentle and Lonely, Dane Ortland says it this way. Time and time again, it's the more disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable, and the undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is, by his enemy's own testimony, the friend of sinners. Here's what that means. And if it wasn't in the Bible, I don't think I could even believe it. But here's what that means. That when you come to Jesus of your own volition or force before him, caught in the act, and you expect the full weight of the law to crash into you because you know that's what you deserve. With Jesus, you do not get what you deserve because he already took it. You are guilty but not condemned because he was already condemned. And all you have to do to receive that is to receive that. <laughs> you just take it. You just open the empty hands of faith and you just accept his cleansing blood. That's the scandalous grace of the gospel. Jesus comforted this woman by not condemning her. But he didn't stop there, did he? Look again at verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. We got to remember this. 
Jesus did not merely say, I don't condemn you. He also said, sin no more. True Christianity is both the full grace of God, of forgiveness, found in Christ, and a call to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. It includes both melting before his grace and stepping into the obedience that he calls us to. He forgives and he challenges. But you got to notice the order. We cannot mess up the order. So much goes wrong when we mess up the order. He could have said, I won't condemn you if you don't sin anymore. In fact, I think that's how we naturally think. That we will somehow get into his good graces if we can just, for crying out loud, stop what we're doing for once in our life. And then we find out we can't. He could have said, I won't condemn you if you don't sin anymore, but he didn't say that, did he? His grace comes first. And his grace empowers our obedience. This is how we know that Jesus really loved that woman that day. And it's how we know that he really loves us too. If he only forgives and doesn't care how we then go and live, does he really care about us at all? If he only sends us back into whatever, whatever lifestyle, this just this hellish thing that we can't get out of. If he only sends us back into that thing that got us dragged into accusation and pain and potential death. If he only did that. We weren't condemned then. But what about later? Is that what you would do to someone that you truly loved? Of course not. Real love is loving someone enough to help them change into who you know they can be. And Jesus loves us like that. And that's why he calls us to obedience. He wants us to be like him. But we can't do that unless we obey him. But we can't obey him, not truly, until we've been changed by him. You see what Jesus is doing? He calls us to himself. He changes us by his grace. And then, somehow, we can actually obey him. Not perfectly. We will never be perfect in this life. But we are different. We have new desires. We want to follow him. We want to obey him. But you can't mistake the order. Real grace forgives us completely. And real love calls us higher. And only in Christianity is there even an opportunity for sinners to become saints. Heaven will not be filled with the deserving. It will be filled with the undeserving. And only them. 
only the undeserving who just fall at the feet of Jesus and just accept his offer. Now I want to end this by, by thinking through how this passage helps us. I, I think it helps us in two ways. I think it helps us personally. I think it helps us corporately. First, I want to, I want to think about how it helps us personally. I think we've touched on this already, but, but I, I want to just kind of drill down on it a bit more. Because I, I, in all of my experience, I, I'm not sure that any sins result in such shame as sexual sins do. It's not just what we act out, it's what we think. It's the thoughts that we have. And then when Jesus added insight into the law in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then kind of ratcheted that up. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Are any of us not adulterers? We're more like this woman than we want to believe. Who among us is qualified to throw any stones? We ought to be stoned. And I think many of us, we feel so broken, so unworthy, and even sometimes so repulsive to God. And we might even sometimes wonder if we're even Christians. Well, here's what the Bible says. That when your heart condemns you, and it does, God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. I love that it says that. You are not repulsive to Jesus. You do not shock him. Jesus came to save people just like you and me. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to experience the cleansing that only he can give. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Not our strengths, our weaknesses. Who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. And he calls us to draw near to the throne. And he calls it a throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now here's what that means. It means that if Jesus is really a savior, if, if, if he's not just a mentor, if he's not just some self-help guru, if he's not just a good example, or even if he's not just a judge, if he's really a savior, he will get down in the mess with you. And he will save you in your time of need because he perfectly understands you. He will be there in the grossness, in the desperation, 
in the deepest temptation, in the hottest part of the battle. He is not just a counselor for the after party when the high's worn off. He's the hero running into the war with you. His throne is not the bench to approach to pay your fine after the infraction. His throne is a wartime walkie-talkie that you can call when the battle gets really hot. He's there for the dark moments, the moments you don't even like to think about. He's there with you, for you, with grace and mercy. He is not aloof to your real life, to your real sins, to the real you. Jesus was tempted as we are, but he remained perfect and sinless. And you know what that means? He knows the real cost. In his perfection, he uses it not as a platform from which he condemns, but a platform from which he saves. There's no one like that. None but Jesus. As Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's doing it right now. And he'll do it tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the day after that until you are with him in glory. When you are caught in the act, you just got to hear this. He won't condemn you if you come to him because he was condemned for you. Not in part, but in full. Your most desperate need when you are most desperate is not to get your act together so you can come to him. It is simple to come to him and to receive from his deep wells of grace upon grace. Only then, only then, only when you just come to him like that, only then will you even have a chance of getting your act together. Don't take your problems to the law. Take them to the gospel. Take them to the cross. If you go to the law, you will get justice, which will crush you. That's its job. But if you go to Jesus, you will find that the law has been fulfilled on your behalf. And therefore, you can find from his fullness grace. Now, that's how it helps us personally. That's how it helps me personally. Now, very briefly, here's how I think it helps us corporately. If the only person who had the moral perfection to throw stones at the woman didn't, let's just be very careful about picking up any rocks. Sin is serious and should be treated as such. But it is no match for the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. Let's always remember the heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers because we are among them. 
If we are to make any impact at all in this judging and condemning world, we're going to do it by stepping into the grace of Jesus together. That's the only way. We're going to do it by laying aside our weapons, stones or otherwise, and coming together to find the mercy of Christ for us. And I don't know about you, but I have enough sins of my own. I don't need to be preoccupied with yours. I have enough need of the cleansing blood of Jesus for myself to keep me on my knees for a while. Don't you? So the way I see it, we have two options. We can become a community that radiates the beauty of Christ so profoundly that condemnation is only something we know we've been saved from. Not something we're looking to bring upon others. Or we can become a community that is so hard to please that even Jesus himself wouldn't be welcome. Which kind of community do we want? (laughs) I I believe we have the first kind right now. That's our reality together. And I'm so grateful. But let's never assume it will always be the case. Let's never think that because we have it now, we'll automatically have it later. If we stop trusting in Jesus, if we remove ourselves from his light, if we somehow grow bored with his grace and start looking for our righteousness somewhere else, we can become the very opposite of what we are right now. Let's just not do that. (laughs) Instead, let's just continue to cultivate a gospel culture where Jesus is our greatest love. Where sin, where sin isn't safe, but sinners are. Where we take each other to the gospel and not to the law. Where we together boldly approach the throne of grace to find the help that we need. Where we treat no sin too lightly or too heavily because Jesus commands real obedience, but he also forgives the worst that we can do because he paid the price. And because he prayed the price, price, we don't have to. Let's not ever make anyone pay for what Jesus already paid for. And let's just love him together. And let's just see what only he can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. For your word. For the grace that's so real, that's so comforting, that we need so much. For your mercy and forgiveness. For the fulfillment of the law in Christ. And the sacrificial death upon a cross. And the glorious resurrection that gives us newness of life. For the intercession of Christ now in heaven. That there is a throne of grace that we can come to when we need. And Father, we thank you that one day you're coming back. Jesus will return and renew and restore everything and wipe every tear from every eye. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray.